Uh, this morning we're going to continue, uh, at least uh, this week, and then we'll pause for the rest of the month. But for today, we're going to continue on in this journey through Hebrews chapter 11, where we've been looking at these wonderful case studies of people of faith, people who through their faith have learned to do more than just face life. And that's a good thing to face life, to be able to do that, because some of us here were thinking, I don't know that I can face Monday, some of you for different reasons. You're wondering if you're going to make it through the holidays. But the wonderful thing about the case studies in Hebrews is they had a faith that enabled them to do more than just face the world. They overcame it. They didn't just deal with it or endure it. They, they took it on. And we saw this last week a little bit when we looked at the story of Noah because there's Noah and uh, he's building this basically an ocean liner out in the middle of West Texas and people are making fun of him and And he stands and he stands firm, not just for a few days, but for a matter of decades, because he knows that the world has gone mad and eventually the world is proven to have gone mad, but he stands and he stands firm. That's power. And that's the kind of power that's available to you and that's the power that's available to me and it's available to us through faith. And so we're going to stay in this series all the way through the end of Hebrews chapter 11, not just to finish the chapter, but so that we can get to a point where we can be like these men and women, men and women of faith, who have more than just the ability to endure life, but to actually conquer it. So with that, we're going to continue on this morning with another wonderful case study. It's the case study of Abel and Cain. So if you would, if if you are able... Um, can you please stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word? All right. You know, it's nice to know that corny jokes work in the first service and the second service. Uh, your Christmas ham has come early in the words of one of our deacons. Uh, here it is. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, the, the question comes up, how is it that, how is it that our ancients... The, the ancestors that we have, these ancestors that are mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11, how is it that they stood firm? Why were they so strong? And at least part of the answer to their strength comes in these words that are highlighted in verse 2 and then again in verse 4. It's the fact that they were commended. They were strong and they stood firm because they were commended. Now, some of us go, well, that doesn't really grip me. I mean, so they're commended. And the reason it doesn't grip us is because the word commended sounds kind of weak. It sounds like, oh, you got a letter of commendation or a certificate or a ribbon or, or some nice little note that you can stick in your personal file. Big deal. They got commended. And it doesn't really help that much either to just go to the Greek because in the Greek, the word that's translated commended is the Greek word martyrio from which we get the English word martyr, which is just somebody who suffers for a cause, maybe even tragically or needlessly, and that just doesn't cut it. If we're going to understand the word commended and why it should really grip us and make us strong, 
we need to understand the, the legal context. The idea here is of a legal one. The, the idea here is that God gives his testimony, that God bears witness in such a way that you and your witness and your testimony and your life are supported. Let's, let's kind of go at it like this. Imagine that you're in the court, you're on the stand, you're on trial, you're the defendant, and you're having kind of a hard time making your case. You're struggling to make your case. Then all of a sudden, some key witness comes in. Maybe they're the expert witness, they've got the Ph.D. in forensics, or maybe they are the witness that until this point has not been found, but the key witness who is actually there. And then this key witness takes the stand And they say something like, I've got two PhDs in forensics and I work in the hematology lab and I've done the reconstruction and there's no way that this person, you, could have possibly been there. Or maybe they say something like, I was there and I saw everything happen and here's what happened. And, And their witness, their expert testimony completely destroys and undoes the opposition. You get off. Now, how do you feel in this moment? When that expert witness, the key eyewitness or the key expert gives their testimony, how do you feel? You feel more than just relieved. You feel exonerated. You feel like personally supported that you've been telling the truth all along and it's not just that your testimony is good, it's that you're good and and there's joy that sweeps over you because the person who everyone trusts has spoken and has spoken in your behalf and you're better than set free. You're better than let go on a technicality. It's better than the court shows mercy to you. You are commended. That's the idea. Now, this is really important. This is not just something that's in the court of law. Everybody wants to be commended. Everybody's desperate for commendation. And we want it, and we want it badly on virtually every level. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this so you you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, We've got a a picture of uh, some characters from the Cosby Show. How many of y'all remember the guy on the far right, your far right? Anybody remember? Can anybody shout out his name? Elvin. Elvin Thibodeau. And if you don't remember that name, that's okay because I don't think reruns are on TV much anymore. I don't know why. But uh, anyways... Elvin hasn't been around for a while, but Elvin was really, really popular. He was on five seasons, and he was Sandra's boyfriend, later husband, all the rest. The guy who played Elvin is a man named Jeffrey Owens. That's the actor's name, Jeffrey Owens. And Jeffrey Owens, of course, is much older now, but he's still an actor. And earlier this year, he was doing what actors do when they're kind of between jobs. He was working a regular job as a regular Joe, making a regular buck. Specifically, he was working at Trader Joe's as a checkout clerk. Somebody got his picture, a picture of a.k.a. Elvin Thibodeau checking people out at Trader Joe's. They sent the picture to this British tabloid, the Daily Mail, and then the British tabloid posted that picture of Elvin checking people out, and it was one of those what-are-they-doing-now sort of snarky expose articles, and the title of the article was From Reading Lines to serving the long line. Really tacky. Not nearly as good a title as Are You Able? But anyways, I digress. So there's this snarky article, and the whole purpose of the article is to shame the actor, Jeffrey Owens. And it backfired. And you know why it backfired? There were these famous actors who knew Jeffrey Owens. There were people like Judd Apatow. You might recognize his face. I don't know. But he he spoke up and said, Hey, 
If anybody wants to take this picture and spin it as anything other than a picture of the dignity of work, they got issues. They're ignorant. And there were these other actors that would rise up and say, hey, Jeffrey Owens is a great actor. And what in the world is wrong with an honest day's labor? And he had all of these different famous actors, insiders, people whose voices mattered, saying, the Daily Mail, you guys, you guys got issues. You guys have got problems. You are messed up. It's nice when you're kind of on the defense to have people rise up and speak on your behalf and give the testimony. To give you the commendation. You know, you know what I mean? Let me give you another illustration of this. Um, some of y'all remember Anthony Bourdain. Unfortunately, earlier this year, he took his life, which was really tragic because he had apparently a soft side. And he would travel the world, as many of you know, on TV, just as a food critic, making you know comments about some of the finest cuisine all over the face of the planet. So it really surprised his followers when one day he rose up in support of a fellow food critic from North Dakota, and I'm going to read her name because I want to get this right. I thought this story was so interesting. Marilyn Haggerty. She was from Grand Fork, North Dakota, and she was a food critic, 92 years old, and she wrote this glowing review of Olive Garden. And she thought the experience was wonderful, and she commended the generous portion of chicken Alfredo. And as you might imagine, when that review went viral, Food snobs from all over the country started making fun of 92-year-old food critic Marilyn Haggerty from North Dakota. And Anthony Bourdain rose up to her defense. In fact, Anthony Bourdain flew out to North Dakota, went to Grand Fork, met with 92-year-old North Dakotan Marilyn, and published a book filled with her columns. And Anthony Bourdain went on to write the foreword to the book, and here's what he wrote. I thought this was good. He said, this is a straightforward account of what people have been eating, still are eating, in much of America. Anyone who comes away from this work anything less than charmed by Miss Haggerty and the places and characters she describes has a heart of stone. Now, when Anthony Bourdain rises up and has your back like that, it's, it's more than just kind of nice or helpful. When the food critic who means the world to the world speaks on your behalf, has your back, gives the testimony, it's not just nice. It saves you. It it gives you solid ground upon which to stand. Everybody needs the commendation. And that's what these men and women who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11 had. You look back at verse 2 and it says, that they had this commendation. They were commended by God for their faith. And then in verse 4, it gives us a specific instance of one person in particular who's commended. And we all need the commendation. You need it. I need it. Because when the one whose eyes count more than any other set of eyes looks at your life and speaks on your behalf, what happens? All of hell can break loose. It doesn't matter. Nothing phases you. Because you have the commendation. You have the strength. So the question that we're going to ask this morning and and hopefully answer is, how do I get the commendation? What kind of faith enables me to be commended? And the specific example that is given here in verse 4 is of Abel and Cain, these two brothers. And so we're going to get into that, that example. And so let's just kind of refresh our memories real quickly for everybody who may not know the, the story of Abel and Cain. It's so very simple. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel and Cain both come to God, and, and 
Abel, who is a keeper of the flocks, presents uh, animal sacrifice, and the Bible says that God had regard for, for Abel and for his sacrifice. And Cain, who is a tiller of the soil, brings a grain offering, and the Bible says God had no regard for Cain and for that sacrifice. And so Abel gets the commendation, and as a result, he has this great heart that enables him to face the world, but Cain has no such thing happen for him. And so the question is, what's the distinction? What, what, why did it work? Why does the commendation come for Abel, but it doesn't come for Cain? And this is the only instance instructive in faith in Hebrews chapter 11 that comes to us by way of contrast. So we're going to go through the story really, really plainly, very simply. We're going to ask, first of all, how are Abel and Cain alike? Then how are they not alike? How are they dissimilar? And then we'll be in a position for me to ask you the question, and hopefully you can grade your own paper on this. Are you Abel or are you Cain? Do you have Abel's faith or not? So first off, let's just recognize that there's a similarity here, and obviously the similarity is, is prominent because they're both brothers. they got the same parents, same upbringing, that kind of thing. And it, it's reminiscent of some other examples like this that are given to us in the Scripture, like um, Isaac and Ishmael, brothers, but totally different. And then you've got uh, Jacob and Esau. I mean, they're twins, same gene pool, totally different. Then you get to the New Testament, then there's the story of the, the ten bridesmaids, five are wise, five are foolish, same event, same friends, probably the same dresses, but totally different. What these and other stories are representing to us is, is something fundamentally important that you've got to get and I've got to get, and that is there's one foundational difference when it comes to the human race. There's one foundational dividing line, and really only one. And the dividing line isn't over race, it's not over gender, the dividing line isn't over politics. There's a foundational dividing line. And, uh, and it means that every person in this world, in fact, everyone in this room, is either Abel or Cain. So let me tell you what the foundational dividing line is. The foundational dividing line has to do with your particular approach to God. And the choice that you make on your particular approach to God is going to impact your life. It's going to affect you in every way, psychologically, sociologically, relationally. It's going to impact you in every way so you're affected even with regards to your eternal destiny. But before we get into more of the details of the foundational dividing line, we need to establish something else, and that is that they're very similar in one respect that's so significant. They are both alike in that they both recognize they need to bring an offering to God, obviously. They both recognize that God doesn't just throw a come-as-you-are party. You need to bring an offering that you can point to and say, this is the reason that you should approve me. Why? Why do they do this? Because all of us recognize you don't just go into other people. If you're going to get the approval of someone else, you need to be careful to control what people see about you. We have examples of this all over the place. One of my favorite examples is probably the most recent midterm elections. And, and I'm going to try not to be political. Don't, don't take anything partisan out of this. If, if some of you are offended by anything that I say on the politics end, I'm offended that only some of you are offended because I'm an equal opportunity offender. I hope everybody's offended. Okay, so, uh, but, but when it comes to the midterm elections, you just know on both sides, Democrats, Republicans, or anybody else that's running, they're not telling you the naked truth all of the time. I'm not saying that people are necessarily lying, okay? I'm not going to say that because we would never say that politicians lie. But we're very careful to present certain things about ourselves and maybe hold other certain things back. And, and sometimes that kind of depends on the 
crowd that we're in because there's this realization that if you're going to approve me, because they come to us, the electorate, and they say, approve me, accept me, vote for me, and then they offer their particular offering. And their offering is something like, look at my record. Look at my plan. Look at my agenda. Look at my family. Look at my big teeth and strong chin. Look at me from this particular angle. Look at this. Don't look at that. They're presenting certain things. Look at my heritage. Don't look at my heritage. Look at my ethnicity. Don't look at my ethnicity. Look, it, that's why we hire campaign managers and press secretaries because there's this realization that if you're going to approve of me, I need to control how you see me. And since even before the days when people would bring tributes to kings, everybody knew that the offering accomplished two things. The offering presented, presented you in strength, and your offering would hide a weakness. It would, it would present the image of strength and power, and it would hide a particular weakness. And people have been doing that since well before politics. And I'm not making fun of politicians because everybody does this. You do this. I do this. If you're going to get into any kind of circle, this is the way that it works. This is how you get the job. This is how you get into school. This is how you go to that particular college. This is how you got that particular date with that particular someone. And that's how you trick that person into finally marrying you is because you presented yourself in a certain way. And it didn't necessarily mean that it was wrong. It's just that you wanted to accentuate certain things and hide certain things present the image of strength, and hide certain things. We do that all the time. You say, well, I'm not so sure that we do that. Well, yeah, you do. Just think about clothes. Why is it that when you go out on your first date or when you go for that job interview, all of a sudden you're real nervous about what you're wearing? Because your clothes are your offering. They're the way of accentuating something. Maybe it's a body part or your eye color or your hair color and maybe hiding certain things, certain things that you you know you have tucked in and tucked away or covered up or whatever it is. We... we we want to control what people see. Now, that's not always been the case. The Bible says, you go back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. They just went into one another. They just went into God, and there was no shame. Why? Well, they didn't have anything, they didn't have anything to cover. They were pure. There was no need to give an offering. There was nothing that needed to be hidden. But then the Bible teaches, one day they disobeyed God, and all of a sudden, as soon as they did, they jumped into the bushes and they... Sew together these garments of fig leaves. Why? Well, they do what we all do. They recognize they couldn't get rid of this realization. We were created to serve God and to serve one another. And, but the reality is we're sort of self-centered. And, and when you recognize you're self-centered but you really shouldn't be, there's shame and there's guilt. And you know you better hide certain things and present other things if you're going to gain approval. And so there is this primal need in all of us to bring an offering. Now, some of you are saying, well, I just don't know if I buy that whole Bible story and all the rest, and I don't know about that offering business. Okay, let me, let me just press this with you. Why is it that some of you work so hard? And it's not just to make money. Why is it that some of you work and work and work, work so hard? Could it be that that's part of your offering? It's what you present to people as to this is why you should approve me and let me in. This is why I have a right to live and to be happy. It's your offering. Why is it that some of you, you can't say no to anybody. They ask for help, you always give the help, and you never say no to anybody. Why is that? Because that's your offering. You're presenting that as the means whereby somebody should approve you because you're always so very helpful, and that's your primary offering you give to people. 
Why is it that some of you are in, entirely different? You just back up. You create distance. You kind of recede into the shadows, go into a hole, and you're not overcommitted. You're undercommitted. Why is that? Because distance and darkness is what you clothe yourself in. Because if people actually saw you for who you were, then maybe they would reject you. I mean, we could go on and on. Why? Why is it that some of you just fall apart? You're devastated if you gain a pound. Or why is it that you're devastated if you're not always on a date or you're not always getting promotions? Because these and other things are the offerings that we present to people to control how people see us as a way whereby we get access. Abel and Cain both recognize you can't just go in. Abel and Cain are alike in this, and they're just like us in this. They know they need an offering because they know there's something that needs to be covered. So they're alike. So how are they dissimilar? Where where does the difference come? This is where it gets really kind of interesting. The Bible tells us how they're different. The Scripture tells us straightforwardly, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. He rejected Cain's. Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. Well, what was the difference in the sacrifice? Well, the Bible tells us by faith. Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, Abel did what he did. And you say, wait a second. Well, what was faith? Well, we've been seeing that faith is largely a response to the revelation of God. It's always a response to God's word. So the question is, what word did Abel and Cain have? Well, Abel and Cain come in chapter 4. Adam and Eve come in chapter 3. And so we know at least that that, that Abel and Cain knew at least what we know from Genesis chapter 3. And here's what they know. God has said at least two things that apply to Abel and Cain. God has told Adam and Eve, you can't cover yourselves. You can't do it. Don't try. I'll cover you. That much is being communicated at the very least when God sees in their futility Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves with their little fig leaves and God comes to them and gives them these skins of animals saying, you can't do it. I've got a better covering. I'll provide the covering that you need so you have access to me. And the covering that I'm going to provide is going to require the death of someone, not you. All that is at least being communicated. And we know in the Old Testament that there are multiple times where the prophets would praise God because they knew that he was going to have to bring the covering. For example, you go over to Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and it just dawns on Isaiah the tremendous nature of what it is that God is going to do in providing a covering. And he just praises God. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. I will rejoice in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. There are other places where the Bible talks about it, but the the very first, God says, Adam and Eve, you can't cover yourselves. I'll have to do it. The other thing that, that God lets Adam and Eve in on and what Abel and Cain there all, therefore should also know is here's how it's going to happen. I'm sending the seed of a woman. I'm going to send a descendant, the descendant of a woman, and he's going to be bruised. He'll be wounded. But that's how it's going to happen. You'll be covered by the one that I send. So here's Abel, and he knows this. And he brings this offering, not simply because he's a keeper of the flocks, but he brings this animal sacrifice so as to say to God, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know specifically all the details. I'm not sure how you're going to work this out. But I'm giving you an offering that is pointing beyond what I'm bringing to you to what it is that you're going to bring because I acknowledge that I can't cover myself. I'm depending on your offering. I'm depending on your generous sacrifice, not mine. Abel offers the sacrifice by faith. Not by works, 
but by faith in what it is that God is going to do. Abel brings the grain offering. This is what I've done. Look at this. Check out how productive I've been this year. And look at how generous I am. And because of what I bring to the table, you're going to have to cover me. I deserve it. And then, of course, it doesn't work out and the sacrifice is rejected. That's the difference. It's like in Luke chapter 18, there's this story where the publican and the Pharisee come. And the the Pharisee is kind of proud about what he's done. And the publican's like beating his chest. I'm an undeserving Sinner, have mercy on me. And one goes home justified and the other one doesn't. Abel goes home justified because he's not depending on his sacrifice. That's the point. He's offering it by faith. Abel's offering it as a sign of his work, of a sign of his deserving nature, and he doesn't go home justified. That's the difference. Now, here, here's the question. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And remember, again, the point is, do you have the kind of faith whereby you can know that you're commended? That you can rest in the blissful commendation that God has given you and stand strong in that commendation. Do you have the kind of faith that you need? Is it like Abel's? Are you Abel or are you Cain? Do you have Abel's faith? Three things to help you to answer this question. Number one, you need to recognize Abel rested, Cain doesn't. Abel is resting in what it is that God is going to do. Cain is resting in what it is that he has provided And if you rest in what it is that you bring to the table, you'll never rest because you'll know it's never going to be enough. In Genesis chapter 4, after Abel brings his grain offering and it's it's rejected, here's what the scripture says. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. And the King James has a little bit more woodenly that his face fell or his countenance fell. In other words, Cain is in this situation where he's just like, "Ah!" he's angry and then his face is downcast. He moves from despondent to angry to angry to despondent. That's kind of his range of emotions. What this is telling us is they can be as religious as they want. They can be as good as they want. They can can try as hard as they want. They can give all the money that they can to the church and to the poor and all the rest. But Cain's will never rest. They'll always have this sense that no matter what I do, no matter what I bring, it's not enough. And they're right, and they're not happy about it. But if, on the other hand, you come pleading the blood of Jesus, and you acknowledge who you are, and that you're in need of his covering, well, then, then that's able. That's a Christian. Then there's rest. There's the difference. Are you at rest, or are you restless? Are you at rest, or is there kind of almost an anger or despondency in you concerning your religion? That's one way you can tell the difference. Here's another thing that will help you to determine if you're Abel or if you're Cain. Abel repents of his righteousness and of his sin. Cain just repents of his sin. What I mean is everybody kind of knows they've got something to be covered. Not everybody brings a grain offering or an animal sacrifice or anything, but everybody knows that they've got something that needs to be covered. Everybody at some point or another recognizes they've fallen short. Everybody recognizes, I have not loved my neighbor as myself, and, and I don't feel bad about that. I, I feel guilty, and there's some shame that needs to be covered. Everybody recognizes this. The big fundamental difference is not between people who feel sorry about their sin or don't feel sorry about their sin. The big fundamental difference is between those who try to cover for themselves And those who recognize they can't cover for themselves. The difference is between the self-righteous and those who don't depend on their own righteousness. 
Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, wait a second. I know some people, and they're not sorry about their sin. Well, you know what? I know. Hearts can grow hard. Hearts can grow calloused. People can change their minds. But you've got to recognize that there's something that goes on inside the heart that is covering for itself. That's why the heart grows cold. That's why it gets hard and calloused. I can't afford to have a soft heart toward the way that I've treated these other people. And so one of the ways that people subconsciously cover for themselves is by hardening their hearts and changing their convictions and turning an eye away from what it is that they've actually done to other people or redefining evil as good. Everybody in some respect or another knows that they have to cover or have something that needs to be covered. The difference, though, is between those who think they can cover it themselves and those who know that they can't. Walking by faith is the opposite of walking by self-righteousness, self-covering. Abel recognizes, I've got this issue, but I can't cover it. And everything that I do in church, in terms of an offering, in terms of anything that is good or expected, ultimately I'm just doing it in a way that it ultimately points beyond itself to what it is that God's going to be offering for me. And so on the surface it may seem very similar. People come, they sing the same songs, they go through the same routine. And some people are doing it out of a gratitude, pointing beyond what it is that they're doing to the ultimate sacrifice that God provides. And there are other people, even in Christian churches, in some respect or another, they're depending on their own goodness. And they're not resting. So here's two questions you can ask yourself so far. Am I resting or am I not? And have I repented of my self-righteousness in addition to my sin? Or have I just repented of my sin and I feel bad about my sin? There's a third thing that's kind of a distinction between Abel and Cain, and that is Cain's hate Abel's. Abel's don't hate Cain's. I mean, Cain's are working so hard to get in and make it and merit God's favor. So when they look and they're just still not feeling God's pleasure because it's not enough and they know it, and then they look at the Abel's who are just resting blissfully in the love of God and they go, what a jerk. That guy thinks he's so, he must think he's so perfect to be, you know, so rested and so at ease. And the reality is Cain is just interpreting Abel through their own distorted grid. Because Abel is looking at Cain saying, I wish you were as rested as me because I know there's really no difference between the two of us. We both need to be covered. I'm a sinner like you're a sinner. It's just that I'm resting in what it is that God's providing and you're not there yet. You're still trying to depend on yourself and that's why you're so angry and despondent. And so it really shouldn't come as any surprise that one day the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the leaders of the people, crucify their own Messiah. Because you got Cain who kills his brother. And you would think maybe the religiousness would make things not so bad, but the religiousness makes the self-righteousness even worse. If there's anything worse than a self-righteous person, it's a religious self-righteous person because they get murderous and factious. And you see that from the very beginning. Religion doesn't solve anything. It makes things worse. So here's the questions. Are you Abel or Cain? Are you at rest or not? Have you repented of your self-righteousness as well as your sin or not? And do you kind of look at the people who are resting in the commendation of God and you just get irritated with them? If you're a Cain, let me give you the solution. Because I don't know where everybody is. But if you're like Cain, here's what you need to do. You need to put your faith in God. Now, this is, I, I hate to keep it so simple. 
but you need to put your faith in God. And you say, well, I already believe that God exists. That's only part of what faith is. You need to believe not only that he's there, but that he actually wants a relationship with you. Here, here's how it's put over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We looked at this last week. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. It's not just that he's there. You know that he's there. But do you believe that he actually wants a relationship with you, that he's not hiding, that he actually wants to be found? So here's some news for you if you're a Cain. You need to know God wants a relationship with you way more than you want a relationship with God. God wants a relationship with you even more than you want a relationship with God. Why would it be so hard to believe that God would do everything that God needs to do so as to open a door and make a way for you to come in if you know he's more passionate about a relationship with you than you are in having a relationship with him? He's not hiding from you. He is eager to be known. You need to know that. You need to have faith in that. Gene and I, just a few days ago, earlier this last week, we saw Instant Family. It's a movie out, and it centers around these, these two people, this, this couple, uh, Pete and Ellie, and they want to start a family by adopting three siblings through the foster care system. And my review of the movie's mixed, but it's a good movie in terms of it bringing out the central theme that everybody wants to be wanted. Everybody needs the commendation. Everybody, maybe children in particular, but I just think this is true, everybody wants to be wanted. So it's the story about Ellie and, and, um, and her husband Pete, and they're trying to adopt these kids. And, of course, the process is long. The kids are in the house for a while before they get turned over to them by the courts and all the rest. And, and the kids are all kind of difficult but because they've been passed around. I mean, their mom's a drug addict, and that's why she's abandoned them. And then they've gone from foster home to foster home and all the rest. And the most difficult of the kids is the, the teenager, Lizzie, and you see the, the quote that's presented there. She says this at one point to Ellie. She, she asks Ellie, why do you want to adopt us? Why do you want to adopt me and Juan and, and Rita? And then her response is, you're just another white lady who wants to adopt charity orphans to make you feel good about yourself. And that's kind of how she feels. Well, the movie progresses, and I'm, I'm not going to give away too much, but if you don't want to see the movie now, well, I'm, I just saved you seven bucks. Thank me later. Uh, the, the, the movie progresses, and, of course, Ellie has a chance to think about it, and she writes with her husband this letter to the, to the law, not the lawyer, the judge, who has the power to award the kids or not. Anyways, Ellie has this chance to at least read a portion of what she's written to the judge, to Lizzie. And she reads this to Lizzie, and she says, you know, Lizzie asked me one time, why did I, why did I want to adopt her and her siblings? I didn't know at the time, but now I know. Our lives were meant for their lives, and their lives were meant for our lives. And we just couldn't imagine our lives without them in them. And I thought, that's, that's what people need to know. There are a lot of people that know God is there and that He exists and that He's real. But their attitude is kind of like Cain's where they go, Yeah, I know, God, you're good and you have to do your things out of obligation, but you're just another... You're just another white guy wanting to adopt charity orphans because you just want to feel good about who you are. And you don't really believe that God wants you more than you want God. 
And I'm just here to tell you, that's not a faith that pleases God. That's not the kind of faith that God could ever possibly bless. Because it's an insult to say to God, you're just another white guy who wants to adopt charity orphans because you just want to make yourself feel better about yourself. That's Cain. He, does, he believes God's there, but he doesn't trust his heart. Because if you trusted God's heart and you knew just how much God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you, you would have no problem believing that he would go to the lengths to which he went so as to have you covered. What the Bible teaches is he loves you so much, he sent his son Jesus Christ to live the life you should have lived and to die the death you should have died. He made the generous sacrifice. And it wasn't just a, a lamb that was slain. It was his son who was the ultimate lamb who was slain to have you covered. He sent the descendant of a woman. He sent his son Jesus Christ intentionally to give his life that you would be covered. He went that distance to open the door. And any time that we would imply through our offerings and our attitudes that God would not offer what he did or that his offering was insufficient, that's not faith. It's an insult to God. And I'm just telling you, I understand maybe you've been burned and the opposite of commendation is betrayal. I mean, who here hasn't felt betrayed in some respect or another? But I'm just telling you from the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of Jesus Christ, God is the opposite of your betrayer. He's the lover of your soul, and he wants to give you the commendation that you need. Trust not just that he's there. Trust in his heart toward you and receive what it is that you need. His commendation, his testimony. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're here this morning and you'd say, you know, I, I know that I've sinned. I know I've got stuff that needs to be covered. But I haven't really ever fully trusted in what it is that God has done for me. But I recognize that God did send Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, that I would be covered. He opened the door and he has me covered. And I want to trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. Because I recognize that not only is God there, but he really, really does love me. If you're here this morning and you would just, and you want to reach out and just want to, you want, you want to know God personally, just right where you are, you could just say this to God, right where you are, God, I know I've sinned, I know I've fallen short, I know I've been selfish and self-centered, and I haven't served you and others the way I should, and I know that, but I also know I can come clean, I don't have to control what you see, you see everything. I know that an offering needs to be given, but I don't need to try to come up with one. You have given me the offering of your son. And he lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death that I deserve to die, to have me covered. So God, right now, I'm going to receive by faith what it is that you have done for me in Christ Jesus. I acknowledge that not only are you there, but you love me, and you showed your love. You demonstrated your love for me in this, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for having me covered. In Jesus' name, amen.